Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Susan Pentegrass is joined by Aaron Hedlin. Dr. Hedlin is chief economist at the Show Me Institute and an associate professor in the economics department at the University of Missouri, Columbia. For more Show Me Institute podcasts, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass. Good morning, Aaron. Thank you for joining me today to talk about the Missouri economy. We've been, I feel like I've done several podcasts in a row on the Missouri economy because people are really wondering, are we heading into like an even worse economic recession or are we coming out of it? Like as COVID starting to sort of wrap up, are we coming out of it or, um, or something else? What do you think? What do you, what do you think we're looking at in Missouri over the next few years? Well, first of all, good morning. Thanks for having me on. I would say that the second half of 2020 was a much faster and more robust recovery than anybody was predicting. Is it a V? Well, that's a little bit of a loaded term. I will say uh, it was V-ish at the beginning, but there was no way we were ever going to recover as quickly as we went down. We had the, by far the largest quarterly drop in GDP in Q2 of 2020. Right. Now, we also had by far the largest quarterly gain in GDP in Q3, uh, but it was not enough to completely get us back to where we were. Right. But for perspective, so people were projecting, when I say people, I mean the Federal Reserve, CBO, Commercial Budget Office, international groups, uh, blue chip. They were thinking we were gonna have a GDP loss of between six and 7% last year. That sounds like an abstract number, but for, for reference, the worst year in the Great Recession was a little over a 2% drop. So this okay. is going to be a humongous drop. And uh, I think in, in large part, combination of federal relief efforts and also just the robustness of the American economy ended up, I believe, somewhere in the three and a half percent decline rate. Okay. So that's still a big recession, but way better than we thought. I think the, the challenge now is that job growth has definitely slowed down. It was really robust in the summer and part of the fall, but then it's a slow down. Where's that going to go? Um, what do you think? And I'm a little bit concerned that, particularly at the federal level, people don't have their eye on the ball. What uh, do you mean? All the relief efforts that have been discussed, for example, in, in President Biden's nearly $2 trillion plan, are all about making the recession more tolerable to people. You know, we're going to keep extending unemployment benefits, yeah. not just at a regular level, but at $300 above normal level or $400 above normal level, which means, by the way, that many workers will, will continue to get paid more to not work than to work. Sure. And we're going to do another round of stimulus, stimulus checks, checks and right. all that sort of stuff. Whereas to me, the number one thing we need to do is we need to switch gears from relief to recovery. And well, that, that means we need to get production ramped up again. We need to get unemployed workers back in the workplace. We need to make sure that businesses that have been impacted, which is a combination of lockdown efforts and the virus itself. So I think there's people kind of go to one side or the other. There's some people who say, oh, well, it's all the government's fault that the economy stank. And if we we didn't lock down, we'd be fine. Well, that's not quite true because people have been acting in terms of their private precautionary behavior to not go to things. But then there's people on the other side who say, oh, well, you know, we need lockdowns. We need more lockdowns to, to stop the virus. And like, I, that's highly damaging as well. The reality is it's a bit of both. And um, you know, I think it some- It feels like, but it feels like we're printing money to fix it. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like billions, the word, the word billions lost all of its meaning to everyone, trillions. We're printing money 
And then I hear, correct me if I'm wrong, that like at um, the state of Missouri level, our budget's bigger than it's ever been. Like, I don't think the state budget has really been negatively impacted because of all the federal money coming in. Yes, yeah, so certainly at the federal level, there's been massive borrowing. There's no doubt about that. Trillions yeah. of borrowing, you know, blows out any, any past year. Um, now I will say from, from my vantage point, in DC last year, when we were being kind of a part of the crafting of the CARES Act, you know, we because, knew that- Because you were on the Council of Economic- Advisors. Yes, as, as on the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And so we, we had a, a major role in the crafting and implementation of the CARES Act, uh, which is the, the over $2 trillion package yeah. in March. Uh, we were also involved deeply with negotiations and, and uh, early crafting of uh, further packages in the summer and fall, but that got mucked up by, by politics. But, um, so we knew that you know, multiple trillion dollars is a lot, but it was a very unique recession. Right? This was not a recession that was created due to inherent economic weakness. The economy was the strongest it had ever been prior to COVID. Literally historic low poverty rates that we'd never seen in the data. Fastest income growth, median income growth. We're not talking just the, the top one percenters. We're talking median, you know, regular middle people and, and actually higher income growth at the bottom. And, and uh, almost then you had full this, employment, right? Yeah, three three and a half percent unemployment rate, uh, lowest unemployment rate for different minority groups ever. So it was a great economy. Uh, household balance sheets were healthy. It wasn't like it was a great economy because people were just going nuts with debt at the house, at the private level. So the objective was, in, in the short run, there was there's all this uncertainty about the virus. Like we didn't absolutely it was devastating New York, and the, you know there was a national emergency that was declared and we kind of went to a national lockdown for a brief period of time and the thought was well during this period of time the government's basically telling businesses for the sake of public health you can't really operate unless you have an online presence or in your certain industries so we thought okay well, we need to kind of freeze the economy in ice right so the small businesses even though they can't operate let's help them pay payroll so they don't have to lay off other workers or go bankrupt and Let's help workers and families who can't go to work with unemployment insurance that's generous than, than normal. But there was always supposed to be a defined endpoint for that, right? Not going on and on and on and on and on. So to me, I think that was an investment at the time in having the, the recession be less severe than it otherwise would have been, because that itself would have caused billions of dollars in deficits just because of tax revenue declines. Uh, that's why we need to switch to recovery now. And when it comes to- What does to that state, look like? <clears throat> What's the difference? I think that the big difference is, uh, one lesson from the from financial crisis and the Great Recession a decade ago is you can't keep extending unemployment benefits forever, right? It's and it's not just about part of it is the incentive of people to look for a job, right? You want people to yeah, actually look, get people back just, to work, not just comfortable. But it's actually not just that, and and maybe not even mostly that. It turns out that unemployment benefits can actually discourage job creation by the businesses themselves. Like they don't, they can't compete for workers, especially if the workers are getting paid more not to work. Yeah. So we need to encourage businesses to create these jobs. And I think part of that is, you know, is, is not doing bad things, right? Not paying people more not to work for the next eight months. Um, but then also doing some affirmative things such as, uh, you know, tax credit is, is a word that I don't like because it's abused in many cases, but uh, there was something in the in the CARES Act, which was pretty small at the time, called the Employee Retention Tax Credit. That basically is a way to temporarily subsidize businesses when they're when they're hiring people back. And I think a 
a reformed and kind of amped up version of that would be really helpful at helping businesses, particularly the hospitality sector, hire workers back and just absorb the unemployed pool as quickly as we can. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But I, I guess I'm curious to know, it feels to me like the economy is opening back up. It feels to me like FedEx cannot deliver anything on time at the moment. I'm waiting on a light fixture and it's now like five days late. And people are like, no, no, you can't get home home materials. Everyone's, you know, there's like construction materials are hard to come by. And it feels to me like people are really anxious to get back out there once they get vaccinated. And I think that there's a potential for a boom in the 20s. Like after the last uh, pandemic in 1918, there was a boom in the 1920s. What do you think? So I think we'll definitely get a short run boom. I think that the GDP numbers in 2021 are going to look really good. And a bunch, you know, there'll be politicians looking to take credit for something that they had nothing to do with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of pent up demand. Yeah. And this was the first recession where total income, I recognize there's, you know, some people did better than others, but total income actually went up during the recession because of all the, all the, uh, all the transfers and sometimes almost too much. So there's a lot of pent up demand. Bank accounts are more flushed than they have been before. Yeah, as people get vaccinated and things open up even more, I think you're going to see a surge of activity. Uh, and I think the big question is, I think there is still some potential for, for scarring, some negative effects, right? If there are some long-term unemployed who don't get back into a job soon, that can, that can create a drag. Um, and I think there's, for entrepreneurs out there, there's really a lot of opportunities because the question is, are we really just going to go back to the old normal? Or have we really just accelerated a bunch of innovation that wouldn't have otherwise happened? Meaning, you know, remote work. I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people are looking to get back to the office, but not everybody, right? And some people are going to move away from some from crowded, expensive, dirty parts of certain downtowns to, to go elsewhere. And a place you know, online has been a re revolution towards online. You mentioned shipping. Yeah, I mean, consumer behavior is pretty much in, in terms of the total level back to where it was, it's just shifted to, to different I mean, settings. education innovates at a glacial pace normally. Our classrooms a year and a half ago looked pretty similar to the classrooms I went to a million years ago and a classroom of, like, you still had 20 to 30 kids in a classroom facing a teacher. It was all very, hadn't really changed. And the amount of disruption in the uh, way education is delivered right now is, is staggering to me. And I don't think it's going to go back to what it was two years ago. I think, I mean, polling suggests that parents are really like uh, learning, you know, education pods or getting together with neighbors or other people to, to do like these customized things. I don't think that'll go away. There's too much demand for it. And parents have had this incredible window in how, to how their kids are educated. Having said that, I think the burden on parents has shifted on a, has shifted employment a little bit because it's very hard to be fully employed and be a almost full-time teacher for your kids. So I think that we're going to see some changes there too, but I am really looking forward to seeing how it all sort of plays out. Yeah, it's a very disruptive time. Um, I, I would say certainly parents, many parents have been negatively affected by the pandemic in terms of the impact on schools. It's been very difficult to have kids learn stuff online. Certain families have done have had you know, better opportunities there than others. Um, and this is exactly why we need a thriving education sector with yeah. more innovation and flexibility than they currently have. And because you've seen some schools step up and 
you know, that includes some you know, public, private, et cetera, they've stepped up and responded and say, well, here's the, the hard cards we've been dealt and yeah. we're gonna try to transform educational delivery uh, in some ways temporarily, but in some ways we'll, we'll learn good things and, and keep certain practices going forward. Uh, but then in other, in other areas, you've got certain parts of the educational establishment who just want to get the paycheck and not actually have to deliver on anything. And that's yeah, really frustrating for parents. Also, the way we pay for education, right? I'm thinking about when Jefferson City, they're going to start talking about the education budget. They're talking about it now. And does it still make sense to send all the money to a school district for them to, you know, pay for the buses? Like if we change how we deliver it, there should be some economies of scale and there are some efficiencies that we've learned this year. But in fact, the, 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 as, I, as always, the call is for more money. And it's like, couldn't we have figured something out this, this time that there's uh, more efficient ways to deliver some services? I don't know. Right, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, there are, there, there are certain vested interests who, who don't want things to change. And sure. it's, it's frustrating because there are so many teachers and administrators, whether it's in public charter or kind of traditional public or private, who are wanting to use all their skills. They're doing great, yeah. Uh, and are, are thwarted by by the small group of people who seems like are, are, are either more interested in power or maybe in some cases they actually do have good intentions, but they're just uh, out of date. They're just not okay. looking at the best practices. But we do still fund schools through attendance. So that right there, I hope in Jefferson City, they start rethinking, should we fund education through attendance? You know, it's a big chunk of the Missouri budget. It's about a third. So it's important that we get that part right. Now, do you think the Missouri budget going forward will be negatively impacted by this economic downturn? Yes, that was one of the most hot button issues uh, on, in DC last year, I'm sure in every state, which was you know, one thing that came up in, in the financial crisis, state budgets, you know, you know, a decade ago, state budgets were very negatively impacted by that. And right. it kind of took a while to recover and that had ramifications it's not, it's not as if legislators responded to that and said, oh, well, we're just going to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, no, they ended up cutting real services that mattered as well, including, including investments and things like education and infrastructure that do have some growth dividends to them. Sure. So I think that th there was, in the early days of the pandemic, real concern that the same kind of thing would happen. Uh, and actually, within the, within the Council of Economic Advisors, we saw what, so you know, Speaker Pelosi she put out in the summertime something called the Heroes Act, which was like this one trillion, no, sorry, multi-trillion dollars, like $3.4 trillion yeah. grab bag of, of kind of liberal wish list priorities. And one of the things in that bill was $1 trillion to state and local governments. And we went ahead and ran the numbers based on the data we had at the time, which is still pretty early. And we concluded that really at worst, state and local governments were maybe gonna have a shortfall over the course of multiple years of like 275 billion, which okay. is something, right? It's, it's yeah. worth thinking about whether to do something there, but she was looking for four, times, as four times that amount. And as the summer progressed and the recovery did better than everyone anticipated, uh, it seems like state and local revenue losses are, are quite a bit smaller than that. So yeah. uh, I haven't, I don't have Missouri's numbers off the top of my head. I'm sure, sure. the budget has been impacted in some way. But to me, uh, whatever we do about the short run, this is a great opportunity to think about how can Missouri change its budgeting process to have a more resilient budget so that when future crises do happen, which come in all sorts of different flavors, uh, you know, how can we be prepared for that so that we're not suddenly having to cut things 
uh, that like a rainy day fund or some sort of a reserve. So reforming how we deal with the reserve, thinking yeah. about different types of different types of tax revenue. I'm not talking about more tax revenue, but certain certain revenue streams are more volatile than others. Uh, so there's there's a lot we can learn from other states and uh, also just economic data. So so this recession did it did it qualify as a recession officially? Was this a recession? It should have qualified, yes, because Q1, the, the National Bureau of Economic Research. No, there's a definition out there. It's like two quarters of GDP drop. Okay. And we had a drop in Q1 last year and a humongous drop in Q2. So it was a recession. So this recession, in your opinion, was caused exclusively by COVID. There weren't other factors involved in that. I, I didn't see any economic vulnerabilities that suggested a recession was around the corner. And the prior um, economic downturn in 2008, what would you, I'm just. Yeah, so, so that one. I mean, even to this day, scholars debate some aspects of this, but but there definitely were considerable economic vulnerabilities, uh, in particular in the housing market. People had people had really leveraged up, had a lot more debt uh, relative to the value of their home and also relative to their income. And moreover, a lot of those mortgages were adjustable rate mortgages. So when the Federal Reserve started to raise rates above basement levels, suddenly people couldn't afford payments anymore. And during the boom time, even if you couldn't afford the payment, you could just basically account on house price appreciation, you know, refinance the loan, take out some, some equity and, and use that to make the payments. So when that train kind of stopped, um, you know, the housing market started to go down, which had ripple effects to the financial markets and the rest of the economy. So there were definitely vulnerabilities that precipitated that. It wasn't uh, something. And that happened over a span of time that wasn't like two months, I felt like the, the COVID hit March 1st felt pretty normal. May 1st felt crazy. So very short period of time when the economy was negatively impacted. It definitely was. Yeah, so there was a precipitous drop in all sorts of measures after the national emergency was declared, I think on March 13th. Was that um, yeah. So we, again, at the, at the, in the White House, we were looking at all sorts of data sources, like credit card data from various places. We were looking yeah. at self- so it's not Big Brother-ish, but it's it's not data that we made up. Is you know cell phone uh, mobility data, um, etc. And there was some evidence of negative COVID effects in February before any lockdowns were put in place, particularly yeah. in restaurants. So people were reacting to the bad news by reducing things a little bit. But it, yeah, really fell off the cliff in mid March. Um, so fast when the emergency was declared, and and also states started intervening. Yeah. So does that mean that that will be part of the reason why we might come out of it faster than we came out of the last one? So I think because the the vaccine, what's the reason? What do you think? So I think because the the economy starts off less vulnerable and fragile. So people's balance sheets, uh, and and I think people, I mean, how people in terms of the amount of debt they have, their income, uh, businesses, their, you know, their, their financial flows. I mean, those are kind of healthier. So there, there's more of a cushion. Also, I think that the federal, relief effort was smarter this time yeah. than in the, in the financial crisis, in particular on, on the Paycheck Protection Program, which you know, every program has its issues when you're trying to set something up uh, very yeah. rapidly. Um, but I think you know businesses are, are in a better position. And yeah, once the virus, as the virus continues to recede, you know, cases and hospitalizations are coming way down, mm-hmm. all sorts of reasons for that, but certainly one of those reasons has got to be vaccination. So uh, the kind of underlying shock, so to speak, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the underlying shock, so to speak, is, is going to be going away. And then what you've got is still a pretty healthy architecture uh, to, to work off of. And then, what I, again, my main concern is just making sure the unemployed workers get back to their jobs as quickly as possible yeah. and, the, and the businesses are, are rehiring as, as quickly as possible. So then maybe we get a short-term boom as everyone has to get to restaurants again because they're just dying from not going to restaurants or traveling. So we get a short-term boom. But long-term, I know you teach college you know, the enrollment numbers are way down for higher ed. And then I think there will be long-term negative impacts in K-12 because, and there were in the pandemic of 1918, there were like lifelong effects for the kids who were in school at that time. Yeah, so there's actually some researchers at, uh, so Northwestern is a team of researchers, the University of Pennsylvania, that have both looked at the, the long-term consequences of basically the, remote, the, the disruption of schooling this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and their assessment is, you know, there is some definitely negative downside to that. We could be seeing effects. It's always hard to measure these things, right. really, but we could be seeing negative effects on earnings and growth of those students when they become adults. Right. So that's, that's why it's really important to think about, I mean, we need to open up schools, right? Absolutely. I mean, those are not, people are not dying in hospitals from COVID because of spread in schools. So we need to figure out how to do that. And, and I'm not saying, you know, obviously think about doing it in a safe, responsible way, but we need to figure out ways to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what about higher ed? Higher ed? I don't uh, think, I mean, I, generalizing as a group, like 18 year olds, but I don't think they really were that interested in starting college in their parents' house remotely. For sure. Yeah, you had a lot of people deferring college enrollment this year. I, I don't know what the University of Missouri's numbers are, but uh, a lot of places that's happened. And uh, I think universities are at least a little bit more sensitive to market conditions than K through 12, which is mm-hmm. completely reliant on tax dollars. So I think universities have realized, okay, if we want the students to come back, we have to actually offer an experience that's, that's valuable to them. So universities are starting to figure out, again, in a, in a way that's safe, figure out ways to open up. Uh, I know here at Mizzou, everything's fluid, but the plan, health conditions permitting, is to be pretty much normal in the fall. That's at least my understanding. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you could see, again, I don't think we're going to get a complete return to normal in the economy, and I think that includes higher ed. We might, we might have some kind of unpredictable reallocation of sorts, and I don't think it'll impact every college evenly. Um, so yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll, I just think we'll, it's interesting because normally when there's an economic downturn, enrollment numbers, particularly in two-year schools and community colleges go up because when people lose their jobs, they think, well, I'll go back and I'll learn a new skill and, you know, I'll change careers. But this year they're down, which is COVID related just because they can't offer much of an experience and, you know, certain fields you really need to learn in person and they haven't been able to offer that. But I wonder if it would cause a rethinking of the pricing structure of higher ed. You know what I mean? If it's so experience dependent and not knowledge acquiring dependent, <laughs> you know what I mean? Then what are we doing? What are we paying for? Right, right. Tiger Grotto, which I, it's nice. <laughs> the Tiger Grotto, it's nice. Yeah, Mizzou Rec, some uh, some years mm. ago, it's like top 10 or maybe number one Sports Illustrated gym or something. There you go. Um, yeah, so I would say there's there's long running question when it comes to the, when it comes to higher ed that if you measure the returns to higher ed, you know, they are fairly large on average, but it definitely depends on what you major in and where, and like where you're going and all that kind of stuff. But there's still a question of how much of that economic return, and by that I mean like higher wages and, and lower unemployment rate, sure. is because of the actual 
value added to knowledge that you learn at college versus just kind of a way to signal to employers, hey, I've got the, the skills to, to get a degree, which makes you wonder, are, are there alternative ways that we could set up for people to signal their skills without necessarily having to go the other route? I, I think that there's probably a mix of both. So we definitely mm-hmm. should, you know, I don't believe in, in cartels or monopolies. So we should definitely expand options on that front as well. What about forgiving student loan debt? Yeah, that's a score. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the student that that's one of those uh, populism is an interesting notion. Populism sometimes has has positive things associated with it. It, it helps us it thinks think in ways that are uh, taking into account the, the plight of broad group of people. But sometimes populism gets a little lazy. Yeah. And when it comes to student loan forgiveness, that's very much lazy populism. It's true that we have a big student debt problem. We've got about $1.7 trillion, which I know everyone's becoming numb to billions and trillions, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot. Of student debt. Uh, But let's keep it, I I think still useful to have perspective. The the median college graduate has, I believe, I have to check the numbers again, somewhere between 25 and 30,000, which is not trivial, but Mm -hmm. it's not life crippling if if you can get a a decent- I think your number's spot on, by the way. Yeah. And, um, and by the way, there's, there's a bunch of people who don't have debt. And this is an interesting fact that I think most people don't realize. The people who are defaulting on their debt are generally not the people with the large loan balances. It's actually people with loan balances below $10,000 or even below $5,000 have the highest default rates. So what's going on there? Well, what's going on is you've got a group of students who are going to college and either they, either they shouldn't be because they're not prepared or it's just not the right thing for them or they didn't go to the right institution, you know, they, did not, they didn't create enough value added at that institution and they are dropping out for various reasons. So now what they've got is they've got maybe $10,000 of debt. No degree. No degree. So they're getting a, a very low paying job, especially since they're still very young and then they just can't afford the payments. Um, whereas you also you have people earning MBAs and, and medical degrees who've got lots of debt but also have a huge income to pay it off. So, sure. so kind of blanket forgiveness of debt is really expensive and not targeted at all. It doesn't solve the problem anyway, because what's gonna stop the next generation of students from acquiring debt because college tuition is still going up. So we, what we really need is reforms to the higher ed sector. So there's more transparency and so people know what value added and, and more competition among price and other things. It's not stu- easy to get student loans. I will tell you as someone who put three kids through college, you hit a button and yeah and there's lessons we can learn yeah there's lessons we can learn from other countries too i mean when it comes you know we we do have the kind of default repayment plan is fairly rigid in the sense that you know what if you know, let's say i have thirty thousand dollars in debt yeah. over the course of many years i could probably pay that off no problem but if pretty much right away i'm supposed to make payments and, I, and my starting salary is very low i've got a problem yeah so there are other options out there but there's so many of them and and, yeah. and unfortunately even though they, they those what we want to do is we want to align the timing of your repayment mm-hmm. with the timing of your income right so as your income grows then go ahead and, and make more payments but not have that be stealth forgiveness right because people talk about income-based repayment but then oftentimes on time right <laughs> it goes away okay lazy populism is that what you would characterize raising the minimum wage that's that's another one of those things that's that's kind of lazy populism or or not fully informed do-gooderism 
right? We absolutely, yeah, I totally I want people at the bottom to have more opportunity. Yeah. There's, there's real economic hardship, even when times are booming. And I, you know, I would love it for people with low income, uh, low wage jobs to get higher wages. The problem is the minimum wage doesn't create higher paying jobs. It basically just sets a bar and then set, and sends this message to all workers. You better have enough skills to merit getting hired at $15. And by the way, if you don't, then you don't serve a job at all. Yeah, that's and right. that's a real big problem for particularly young people or people who are just getting back in the labor market after years of being out of it. Yeah, uh, who what what they really need is an opportunity to get on the ladder. Right, and then once they're on the ladder, there, there's upward mobility there. So uh, mm-hmm. I think a when it comes to minimum wages, and if you're going to look at the state of the art economic research, there is some nuance to it, which is that when you're in labor. For in, in particular labor markets where there's just like one dominant employer and there's no real competition, mm-hmm. there the minimum wage can be, you know, is less bad or in some cases could be okay. But again, not any level of minimum wage. $15 to me is, is very problematic in the sense that you're going to get a lot of job loss. But then really in most labor markets where there's a decent amount of competition, it, it's, it's really quite, quite destructive. We should look towards other things like wage subsidies yeah, uh, that that do not involve job laws. Did you call it misdirected do good do goodism? I like that. Uh, yeah, misinformed uh, do good. Misinformed. That's right. Misinformed. Yeah. I will probably borrow that to describe universal pre K. But that's another one where people are like it must work. Let's put all the money we need to into it, and then it doesn't. There's no evidence that it will impact academic outcomes but it feels like it must. So misinformed do-goodism, I like that. All right, so you optimistic about the next, about the economy over the near future? Ne- so next I'm not- I mean, if I'm, do- we're doing this podcast in 2031, which would be weird, right? Well, let's just say we're redoing this podcast in 2031. We're national by then. <laughs> yeah, it'll be some sort of something. Um, what do you think will have happened in the 10 years between the two? So when you're talking a long time horizon, like like ten years, yeah. Um, there, I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic. I'm optimistic because of the dynamism in the U.S. economy, the entrepreneurial spirit yep. of the American people, uh, the aspirational attitudes that that people have. So I, I think that Americans are always looking for ways to to create value and and, and do exciting things. Uh, I don't know what the roller coaster ride will look like between now and then. I mean, I think, in, again, in this particular, in 2021, I think we're going to have a good economic year. 22, 2022, 23, 24, um, there's kind of countervailing forces. I think the recovery will be going on, but there's also headwinds from federal policies that I think are, are going to be a bit not, not well thought through. Yeah. Um, but my optimism comes from the economy is more than just what the politicians do. Sure. And even when politicians are doing bad things, uh, usually Americans can find a way to, to, to still have a prosperous economy, as long as those bad things aren't, aren't too oppressive. I mean, Robin Hood, GameStop, Bitcoin, these are all non-policy activities, right, that people are getting, are making money off of. So I don't know. Right. Now there's, you know, hundreds of millions of, of people who are looking for ways to, you know, contribute in the workplace and start yeah. their enterprises and I'm optimistic uh, because Gen Z 
sort of grew up in the last financial crisis. So I think they're going to be more financially responsible and they're going to work harder to make, to make more money. I think I'm a, I'm a um, Gen Xer. I don't think we worked all that hard, but you know, I think Gen Z is going to work really hard. So I'm optimistic. Yeah. I, th I think people have learned from the last recession that they're, they're a little more cautious about debt going crazy, going crazy with debt. Mortgages. Yeah, I hope so. And Missouri, Last, last question, prospects for Missouri's economy over the next five years, let's say. You know, Missouri is a really interesting case because I think there's so much potential in the state. And unfortunately for years, it just has not been realized nearly to the degree it should have been. And there's so many metrics we can look at where Missouri is, you know, bottom 10 in growth. And um, so again, I think that there's the Latin potential there but what we really need is far more imaginative and sound policymaking to unleash that. Yeah. Because when you're talking about the US, like talent can move around anywhere in the US. And what we need to think about in Missouri is how can we cultivate our own homegrown talent, like making sure kids are getting quality education, able to reach their full potential. And, and then we also wanna retain it, right? When yeah. people become adults, we want it to be a great place to live where they can start businesses, or go to work, participate in their communities and, and make decisions uh, you know, to, to the best that they can. So I, I would say that it will take some imaginative thinking to, to go beyond the kind of mediocrity that we've become accustomed to sadly in terms of economic performance overall. And, mm -hmm. but hey, I'll be optimistic. Let's, let's hope it happens. We, we need to give up that uh, show me attitude where everyone else has to already have done it before we can try it. That's what I think. I think we need to get a little bit more entrepreneurial in our thinking, but I hope that we can, you and I can check in on the economic situation because um, it's going to be interesting. So I, I hope we can check in again on it. Absolutely. And I would also say we should also be more results oriented. Right? There's, oh, yeah. you know, if you keep doing the same policy over and over again, but you don't see any indication that things are getting better. To me, that suggests that's a failure. You need to rethink things. I think you're right. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron. Have a great uh, weekend. And I really appreciate you coming and talking to me this morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.